you know what? Perhaps your purpose is to be happy. How cool is that? Because from that place, look what ripples you, you spread, right? This is Brave New Girl Podcast, and we share real stories with real impact. I'm your host, Lou Hamilton, and I'm a filmmaker, author, and artist, and passionate about storytelling for making a positive difference in the world. Your story matters. It tells of who you are and why you do what you do in the service of others. And my guests bring you their stories, their highs and lows, and courage gained along the way. Join us for the ride. This week's guest is Janie Lee Grace, best-selling author of Happy, Healthy, Sober and the Imperfectly Natural series. Formerly a singer and now DJ on Radio 2, Janie is founder of The Sober Club and is a coach and media trainer for those wanting to find clarity and vision and then looking to package it and send it out into the world in a way that will make people listen. Welcome Janie to Brave New Girl Podcast. Janie, how are you? I'm great. Thank you for inviting me. I'm really pleased to meet you finally. Our, our paths have nearly crossed many times. Yeah, so. I know. I know. It's lovely, isn't it? When you finally connect, <laughs> albeit online. <laughs> and uh, and it's a sunny day and we're going to be talking all things sobriety. And so for my listeners, for people who are either sober curious or thinking about being a bit more mindful and considered about their drinking or people who are fully solid gone committed to being sober. So hopefully that covers most people mm. um, who are listening in. So yeah, so it's brilliant to have you here. And I've been sober for about five and a half years. So I think pretty similar to, to you, isn't it? Yeah, I'm four and a half, actually. So yeah, very impressed. <laughs> and I think that times have really changed in in those years definitely it was I was most definitely a weirdo when I was uh, when I decided to go sober and I was definitely on my own and I think that has changed partly because of people like you who have created this these sober communities and during the pandemic you brought out your book happy healthy sober it came out in 2021 didn't it mm -hmm. yeah and so what did were you noticing with people around their drinking and trying to go sober or thinking about being sober? Mm. Well, I think for me, you know, I, I, my whole approach really is about being kind of non-judgmental and, and literally trying to bring the positive sobriety kind of approach in. So, you know, we're all aware that there are people who are absolutely at rock bottom and need alcohol services and rehab. But then we tend to think that there are those people and many of us think, well, that's not me. I, I you know, I, I, I don't need alcohol to get started of a day. I'm not pouring vodka on the cornflakes or anything. So, so I'm good. And then, and everyone else tends to think they're 100% fine, apart from, you know, the fact they wake up every morning feeling pretty terrible. Um, so we've been kind of brainwashed into thinking that this is normal, that these two end, you're either at one end of the spectrum or you're at the other. But I really don't believe that. I, I really believe that there's a whole um, spectrum of what you know, we now know the term is grey area drinkers, people who are drinking more than they want to. Um, and they're the people that I really want to, to reach so that I can say to those people, do you know what, there is another way. And it's really exciting. And it's fabulous. Whereas if you'd said, if, if I'd have kind of looked into this, well, as I did, many years ago, the perception was just, well, I'm not that bad. And oh, my goodness, I could never stop. 
life would end. So not, you know, we need more of this kind of positivity around it. To answer your question finally, sorry, uh, that was a very long answer. Um, during lockdown, there's no doubt that um, a huge number of people um, were feeling unbelievably stressed and anxious. And, you know, what do you know? The gyms, the parks, the beaches are closed, but the off-licenses are, are open, you know? So, hey, why not just uh, have copious amounts of booze and start at 11 a.m.? And if you're having an online work meeting on Zoom, you know, in, in late afternoon, obviously what's in your glass seems to be important. I mean, it was just the most bizarre time. And um, I, I really think it knocked a lot of people for six, even people who had been doing well, um, people in my community, the Sober Club, there were people who had stopped drinking and they were they were doing great. But lockdown just absolutely knocked them back. It was a, just a very, very odd time, I think. So, uh, yeah, I, I effectively wrote the book during lockdown. It wasn't linked to it in any way, but the book is very much around how we can focus on that positive piece and bring in the self-care. Because for me, there are kind of two pieces to this. There's making that decision, ditching the booze, but then it's the what's next. It's not It's not always the getting sober. It's, okay, what do I want for the rest of my life? Sort of underpinned by the sobriety piece. And I really want to talk about that because um, when I went sober, I thought that that was kind of the done deal. You know, I'd made the decision and life would be great. <laughs> and actually, you know, all of those things that I'd, I think I'd masked yeah. with alcohol and numbed with alcohol uh they will they will still there so I then had to deal with all of that so I would like to talk about that a bit later on and go in a bit into a bit more detail about going sober and and being part of a community but mm. first to give a bit of context to my listeners about who you are and where you come from and I'm always very curious about people thinking back about their childhood and seeing if there are any clues in their upbringing, their background, to their personality, to the kind of person that you've sort of ended up being. So paint us mm. a picture of, of who you were as a little girl. Yeah, I think um, I knew from a very early age that I wanted more <laughs> than, um, than my uh, family kind of thing. My, my parents were... I mean, how do I put this nicely? Just um, not in any way ambitious. It, it was not the easiest upbringing. My mum my had mental illness. My dad was also very ill. So um, I spent a lot, you know, a lot of my childhood feeling really, really unsafe and very, um, very insecure. I've since done huge amounts of work on that. And I now, I'm now trained in family constellations, which is utterly amazing. So I've, I've absolutely kind of uh, reconciled a, a, whole, a whole lot of stuff. But, you know, looking back, I was definitely very insecure. But from a very early age, I had this kind of spark that I wanted to well, show off, basically. <laughs> I wanted to show off. Um, so, you know, I, I, I had a friend who lived on the street who went to, started going to Sunday school. And my parents didn't go to church, but she told me about Sunday school. And she said, you get to like sing and um, and then they give you sweets. And I thought, well, what's not to like? So uh, that's kind of how it's it started. It's a double win there, isn't it? Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's how it started. I, I started singing in Sunday school and, and then sort of managed to work my way into um, earning enough uh, money because we, we had absolutely no money. But I managed to get myself a little job when I was about, 12 I've no idea what it was and I earned enough money to pay for ballet lessons 
So I, so I was quite committed to doing something. And then I got to go to sixth form college, which was, was quite life changing for me. So I had a, a really awful school. But sixth form college was amazing. And I got to be in, you know, to do drama and music and theatre arts. And then and so then I went and did a degree in performance arts at um, Middlesex Uni. So I got to show off, basically. And I think from a very early age, I knew that I, I had this kind of drive and this ambition to do, do something more. If I if all things being equal, I would have been working. I would have stayed in the Nottinghamshire village and been working in the local factory. That would have been what they'd have liked for me. I don't mean that in a mean way, just as what it is. It's just the truth. But I, I always I had an absolute drive and commitment that something else was going to happen. So that tenacity has seen me through really, I think, more than anything. And that kind of belief that if you really, really want something enough, you really have to go after it and then you have to set your intentions. I think I've probably been, been, been manifesting before I knew it was a word. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you know, other ch- other children who have had a similar family dynamic and fe- felt very insecure might have gone inwards and yeah. become quiet and withdrawn and their fear would have taken them in inside and away from things. Whereas for you, you felt this kind of propulsion to, to go outwards. So were you clear in your mind? Was there a sort of a picture for you in your head of what that might be? Or was it just this kind of energy in your in yourself that was just, I have to be doing something? I think I probably always knew I wanted to be involved in pop music, actually. I think from, you know, from a very early age, I, I you know, I loved singing and dancing, as I say. And then I, I you know, I saw it might have even been seeing ABBA on the telly, something like that, you know, that made me just think, oh, that's it, that's it, <laughs> right there. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think it was always always going to be pop music. I went through a phase of thinking I would do um, musical theatre or be a dancer. In fact, I majored in dance when I went to uni, but I wasn't just really wasn't good enough. Um, and I wasn't passionate enough about it to 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 make it to make it work. So um, so I think it was always going to be the pop music, really. And, uh, you know, I mean, it was funny when my, my very first job after I um, well, I, I left uni and then I, I worked in a kind of a covers band for a while, which was fantastic training. And then my very first job was I, I remember I was in this nightclub doing this kind of um, singing covers. Um, and it was good training and it was good money, but, you know, it wasn't going to take me anywhere. And then I saw an ad for uh, Mary Wilson and the Wilsations. You remember Mary with the beehive? She needed a, a backing singers for a tour. And I remember, I can remember so clearly writing that application <laughs> to, to the, you know, sending in the, well, it would have been a letter in those days, of course, <laughs> not even an email. And I wrote on the application, um, you know, I'd love, I'd love to audition and all the rest of it. And then I put at, at the bottom of the application, um, uh, I'm, I'm working in a covers band or whatever. I, I you know, desperately want to, to work in pop music. Please save me. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> and, and when I went to the audition, um, Mary said, yeah, yeah, I, I get that. Yeah, I get that. It, and it obviously resonated, you know. I think when you, when you really want something, people see that. You know, oh my god, I love. <laughs> so then that. I ended I up, yeah, place. I ended up working with um, 
Julia Fordham, it was um, myself and Jules that were in the Mary's band for a couple of years. Yeah. And, you know, pop stardom is is not an easy path. So how did how did it evolve? And did you think that, you know, what was your plan were for yourself were you were you wanting to write were you wanting to go solo mm, yeah it was kind of all of the above really and and you know I mean I, I obviously I never reached pop stardom although I tried many times but what was quite in, you know interesting looking back is that I had a fantastic career because I got to work with some amazing people I worked with Wham on all their tours um there's an interesting story about how all that came about but I don't know how much time we've got yeah but, please, um, please but tell I, us <laughs> Okay, well, well, Wham literally came out with uh, Young Guns and everyone had kind of seen them on top of the pops. It's like, wow, what is this even? You know, like they really made a massive impact, didn't they? And then, and, and suddenly they had um, a tour booked, a, a, a UK tour booked, which everybody knew was going to be literally bonkers. You know, it was, everyone knew it was going to sell out within a few seconds of it, of it going on, on, on sale, but they had no band and they'd never, what, you know, they were young guys who'd never really, uh, never really been on stage. So they needed a really hot band. So I got to hear through, uh, through one of the guys in Mary Wilson's band, he happened to know their tour manager. So he said, well, you've got nothing to lose. Just give, give him a ring. So I rang the tour manager and I, and I said, you know, I'm a backing singer. And uh, if you need backing singers, um, you know, will you consider me? So he said, um, well, you can come down to the auditions, you know, more, more or less kind of we don't care who we have hanging around. Come down to the auditions. But um, the truth of it is we're going to hire a vocal section. So at that time, there were quite a lot of vocal sections. There were, I forget the names of them all, but there were, there was several sections of people who'd been doing it for years, like Kokomo were one. So some people might know Kokomo, really well-established. Um, I think it's Guy and Two Girls. And that's what they did. They did harmonies and they did BVs and they were a unit. And, and there were several of them. So they wanted to go straight in for that high-level um, unit. So anyway, well, nothing to lose. So I go down and I meet uh, the musical director, have a chat to him, get to sing with with uh, the band. And I think George might have popped in as well. Yeah, he did, actually. He did. So we, so I got to meet them a little bit. And it was all very low key. And I went away and I, and I said to the musical director, um, is there anything I can do? And he said, um, well, probably not. You know, he said they, they, they're really set on having um, a, a full, already formed unit. He said, so it's a shame, shame you're not part of a unit. And I and I just went, mm, okay. So I went away <laughs> and phoned up two friends. I phoned G Bello from Light of the World, uh, who I'd worked with on a session, and a friend of mine, Janet, who I'd sung with. And I just said, um, how do you feel about being a vocal, vocal unit who have worked together for years, obviously. <laughs> obviously. You know, nose, <laughs> nose grows. Um, and, um, and so we rehearsed by phone. We just rehearsed all of these, I mean, literally on the phone. We re just rehearsed all the harmonies for uh, the cu couple of Wham tracks um, and a couple of other songs that we put together. And then I rang the musical director back and I said, oh, gee, I don't even know why I didn't think of it. <laughs> we work as a vocal unit. And he went, okay, come down. And we got the gig. Amazing. I mean, unbelievable. Unbelievable, really. But, you know, I was kind of determined. And how long <laughs> were you with them for? I, I did all everything, uh, all the uh, all the WAM tours uh, and China, including China, which was just now I think back, just unbelievable. Literally the first 
first Western bands play China, you know, before even any of the changes, it was, what was it, 84 or something? Mm. Um, so, yeah, yeah. So I did all the, all the tours. Um, uh, it was amazing, amazing time. Yeah. So I imagine in that era and, you know, probably, I don't know whether it still is, but, you know, it's a lot of work hard, play hard, a lot of drinking. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I was always... Um, when I look back, I realize that because I was so fearful and because I didn't have a safety net, if you know what I mean, of any kind, you know, I didn't have parents who would come and collect me at the end of a party if I was drunk because I didn't even have a car. You know, I, I had no safety net for anything. So therefore, I had a very strong sense of needing to be in control. So because of that, I didn't start drinking too too early, which I'm really grateful for. And I never took took drugs. I never even touched anything. <laughs> and I'm absolutely convinced it's not because I was, you know, super goody goody. It's because I was terrified that no one would support me or save me <laughs> if anything went wrong. So for that reason, I was kind of um, just kind of naturally quite a good good girl as it were on the on on the tours um I did drink but um I couldn't actually I couldn't actually hold my beer so I didn't drink too much um but yes it was all going off around me absolutely um and then and it's not just the music biz obviously it's you know then later when I started working in radio I mean I remember we pretty much everybody used to just go to the pub across the road from BBC London and be in there for you know three three hours and then after after work, everyone would be, I mean, it was just such a drinking culture, huge drinking culture. Um, when I worked at Virgin Radio again, you know, um, Chris Evans famously tell you himself, you know, that when the breakfast show ends, ends, you know, you go and drink, don't you really? So yeah, it, I did have an awful lot of years in a culture where everyone drinks all the time, really. That's it. Yeah. And so underlying all of this, you've talked about that kind of sense of insecurity and I guess, need for control. And so, you know, these things we can kind of suppress for as quite a long time. And, mm. but then eventually it, they kind of rear their ugly head. And, and you've mm. described how you, you went on a sort of campaign of searching for every kind of alternative help that you could possibly yeah. get. And I, I really identify with that because I did too. Um, anything but give up drinking. <laughs> So I tried yeah, anything, everything yeah. else. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, not giving up drinking wasn't even on my radar. I mean, for years and years and years, not just literally not on my radar. Um, but when I had, when I, I was determined, I didn't think I was going to have any children. I, I, I kind of thought I was, you know, rock and roll kind of girl and, uh, and children didn't fit with that. And also if you'd asked me if, you know, if I'd been really truthful, I was terrified of having children. I, you know, I had no, con no concept of children. I had no concept of what a, stable family looked like so why would I do that you know so I was convinced I would never have children um and then I got pregnant by accident in inverted commas you know um not expecting to get to be pregnant uh and then it, it was just bizarre that that suddenly I really desperately wanted this baby <laughs> um and uh and and then and it was at that point that I went on a really steep learning curve really steep learning curve that was 20 he's 23 and um and so I, I, I'd already been interested in healthy food, you know, in 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 sort of a, a little bit around mindset stuff as well, but but definitely healthy food, 
skincare without chemicals. I'd already been on that path um, in order to be as healthy as I could be. But then when I got pregnant, that added another whole layer. So I that's when I really got deep into, into just looking at holistic living generally at that point. And then as time went on, that's when my first book um, was kind of became a little bit of an idea, you know. It didn't come about for a long time, but it became a bit of an idea. And then, um, you know, after that, as as time went on, I just got more and more interested in literally all things holistic living. And I couldn't niche. I just really wanted everything. And as you say, I did try. I don't think there's anything I haven't really tried. I mean, anything at all. Every therapy, every kind of treatment going. And, and I certainly towards the end of my drinking career, as it were, I would I would have treatments or... I'd have a, I'd see a therapist or a healer or whatever. And if I felt comfortable, I'd, I'd share that I thought maybe I was drinking a bit too much, you know, because they'd say, well, you know, tell me about everything and how do you sleep and how's this? And, you know, you'd get, you'd get through a lot of stuff and then there'd be that, like this little voice and you'd say, actually, there's something you're not really saying. So then I'd go, can I just share one other thing with you? Because I kind of think I'm drinking too much. And then just exactly the same as the GP, they would usually say, well, how much are you drinking? You look fine. You know, mm, well, and then you lie, you know, say, well, you know, two, three glasses a night, you know, kind of every night, really. And, and then the answer would be, oh, well, so am I. Yeah. Or, well, you look fine, but tell you what, have an alcohol-free day, yeah? <laughs> if I had a quid for everyone that had made that oh-so-helpful suggestion, like, have an alcohol-free day. To someone who's just expressed and it's really taken them a lot to express that they're drinking too much have an alcohol free day so um so it never really went anywhere <laughs> and i just used to leave every whatever it was thinking oh it's fine i'm normal everyone's the same and that was the thing that's the thing is that other people are drinking that amount so it, in exactly. a sense, it, it is, is seen normal. as normal yeah yeah, it is, it is normal. Depends on your on what you call yeah. normal. Because actually, once you stop, you realise there's nothing normal about feeling like hell every day. There's nothing normal about waking up in the middle of the night, you know, 3am with your heart pounding, hating yourself. There's nothing normal about having to cut a bedtime story off early for your kids because you want to get to your wine. It's not normal. It's not normal. It's not normal to have awful, you know, menopausal symptoms and be given HRT and antidepressants, but not be asked about whether you're medicating yourself. You know, it's not normal, actually. We, we, that's, that's what we need to tip on its head. That, that status quo has to be challenged. And so what was it that started to, I mean, obviously, there were kind of like little glimmers of, of, of a voice telling you that this wasn't quite right. But but you were being told from the outside that, well, you know, everyone else is. So, mm. yeah, it's nothing to be worried about. But did that voice get louder? What what was the progression? Mm. Yeah, the voice definitely got louder. And I did have periods of not drinking, which I'm actually very grateful for, because now that I work as a coach, I'm able to really see clearly what happens with people when they stop for a period of time because they've been in inverted commas NLP'd I don't mean that in a bad way but they've been NLP'd into stopping they've absolutely realized alcohol is really really bad for, for, for us which by the way it is we don't need to sugarcoat that at all number one most harmful drug let's tell it like it is so they get that piece and then so then they go oh my god right okay I got it now I'm absolutely going to stop because I never want to feel as hungover as I did last weekend or whatever the rock bottom ish moment was and so then they stop sometimes for 
um, a few months, um, which is exactly what I did. I read Jason Vale's book, stopped for six months, was feeling good, knew that alcohol was terrible, you know, feeling okay. Why on earth would I want that disgusting drug? Went to a party. There, there was no other drinks available of any kind. I wasn't even aware that any existed. Uh, it was something that I was where I was presenting an award. So they wanted a picture of me with a glass of champagne in my hand. And the thought in my head said, well, obviously, you're not an addict. You've, you've done, you, you have no problem. So of course, you can just have one, it would actually be really rude not to. And there I was straight back down the booze elevator. And it happens so often. Um, so I think it really is a case of recognizing that, yes, you can stop. But actually, the real work comes in when you start to look forward to just how much better life is without alcohol. But I'd never seen that until 20, end of, uh, whenever it was, 20, four, four and a half years ago, 2017, 2018, um, I was I'm work, I'm working on Radio 2 and we, I was given a book, uh, Claire Pooley's book, um, uh, The Sober Diaries. She was on the on this podcast oh yeah. uh, brilliant cool she's so, so lovely so I was given her book to read over Christmas because we were going to be interviewing her at the start of dry January and I, as you know if you work in this industry you, you if you're given someone's book because you're going to be interviewing them you, you're given it the night before if you're really lucky so this was very unusual to be given a book with two weeks to read it so the producer hands it to me says oh I'll have a quick glance at this before we come back in January I looked at the title and I knew, I knew right then, oh, wow, it's time. So obviously I didn't stop drinking over Christmas. So why would I do that? Um, in my mind, that would be terrible. And then Christmas ended and I opened up Claire's book. And for the first time ever, I, I read about someone who was just like me, busy mum, working, drinking too much, but not at rock bottom, not needing AA, just literally you know, not able to finish a bedtime story because, you know, rather go and have a glass of wine. I was literally reading about myself effectively. And what she did was talk about the possibility of life being better. Better, not just, okay, you'll get through it. And you know what, you'll be able to manage, you know, you'll be all right. No, not that at all. The, the glimpse of a better life, a much better life, a life that you would choose. And I don't think I'd ever glimpsed that before. Before it was always a case of, I must not drink because alcohol is bad. And so as soon as, you know, anything trips you up or the voice comes in, or oh, you need to celebrate or you need, how we do that is with alcohol. That had been my, my past perception. But that was the very first time I ever got a glimpse that there could be a much better life to choose without booze. So I thought, well, you know, I'll, I'll start, I'll at least do, you know, a few weeks into January because, you know, in honor of Claire. And then I just kept going and never looked back, you know, and that, that is really the key. That's what my book is all about. That's what all the work I do is about, is trying to let people catch a glimpse of that better life. And, and it is a better life. Um, but I, talked a bit earlier about the the little bit of work that you have to do kind of between the giving up the booze or hopefully kind of before you give up the booze but if you haven't to do it when you've given up the booze so that you can then um feel the benefits of a better life without mm. booze yeah yeah 
there's a huge amount of work to do actually and that's this is this is exactly what i was referring to when people don't do any of that work usually there'll be a point you know it, at some point in the future when they will drink again because why would they not because they haven't laid those foundations you know so i kind of call it you need to lay the foundations really before you can get up to that second and third floor. Some people do go straight up to the second, third floor and then it all comes crashing down. But actually, if you do lay the foundations, it makes such a massive difference. And I think in the early weeks of sobriety, you know, some of the things that that are not talked about enough, in my opinion, are the importance of really creating your sober toolkit if you like and really getting shored up as to what you need and one of the one of the most you know there there are physical things and there are emotional things mm. one of the most important things is eating really well and nobody told me that <laughs> you know you think I'd know with all my kind of health and well-being background but you know I didn't um so consequently I think I really suffered my brain chemistry was all over the place no dopamine no serotonin no gaba you know you can just imagine my kind of brain chemistry saying what the hell are you doing to me where is my dopamine hit what is going on you know um and when you feel really shaky like that and really uh, um out of sorts of course you're going to reach for a drink if it's if it's there and available so I think you have to get the nutrition piece right um you cannot be thinking oh I think I'll stop drinking to to lose some weight no absolutely 100% not you need really good nutrition three meals a day protein with every meal it's really critical so that's that's a very important piece and then obviously there are there are other pieces like needing to keep inspired you know that's why i do my podcast cuz i started listening to podcasts and i really noticed the difference it made and when i ran out of podcasts to listen to i thought <laughs> i have to do my own <laughs> so that i can interview claire pooley and loads of other great people um so keeping inspired is really really important having some time for yourself some kind of practice is really important and i don't mean it has to be 20 minutes in meditation levitating <laughs> you know if if that's your thing great but it might be that you just go for a walk you know or you just ground yourself but whatever it is you do need to actually pause if you simply wake up go straight on your phone and straight into the day kind of effing and blinding as you go um it's going to be really hard to kind of come back to who you are um and and because you do have to kind of find a new identity when you stop drinking and that can be the piece that's very hard for people is okay well who am i now then now that this this is this party girl has been stripped away who the hell am even am i and often people find they're a very different person to the one they thought they were they find they're actually really quite introverted um and one thing everybody finds is that they're more kind that is absolutely a thread that runs through but anyway what was i saying so sober toolkit connection it is so important to get connected you have to be connected with like-minded people who've been there done it got the t-shirt or they're on the same path because if you don't you literally you have you just have conversations in your head with yourself and your unconscious mind will say to you oh you've done really well you've done 3 weeks oh you're doing great just have one you know and you'll be back where you started and similarly clients often say to me Oh I you know I don't need to join the sober club or I don't need to be part of any community because I got a really supportive partner so um who hardly ever drinks so um he or she is re- they're really good they re- they completely get it it's great I feel really supported okay well let's see how that plays out then because it look it'll be the very first time that you are raging with fury at something or really upset or feeling really stressed and that loving supportive partner will say oh sweetheart you've done so well i'm just opening a bottle of something just have one and they're not being unkind they just 
are not in the same place. They don't get it. They, they perhaps haven't had the voice in the head that compels you to drink. So you do need connection with, with people who are on the same path. And I think that's, it's such a critical one. I can't, I can't, I just can't underestimate the power of that connection. Continuing as well, because what's so lovely about our group is that we become cheerleaders for each other, not just in the early weeks of ditching the booze, but when someone's four years sober and they're now feeling brave enough to start their own business. They've been talking about it forever and a day, but being sober makes you brave, right? You know, or go back to uni or start a charity or go traveling. You become brave because you're able to be who you are authentically. And what I love is, you know, your journey and your story has led you to where you are now and to helping other people to become sober and to create the, the community of, of people being sober. And and do you find that um, in the way that Alcoholics Anonymous, um, they they talk about their stories of drinking do you find that in your sober community that you talk about stories of change and the future and what the future can hold yeah 100 percent. that's exactly it i have a course called get the buzz without the booze that is part of the sober club membership and on my the very first lesson of that course i ask people to, de to determine why they want to do this um and I also ask them to, to document one experience that they would rather never have again. You know, one experience that sums up just how absolutely awful it is. And we've all got one. <laughs> Some of us have got many, but we've all got one. The defining, you know, a defining moment where you never want to go back there. The guilt, the shame, the absolute misery that was all your own doing. You know, we've all been there. Um, so I get them to document that. Um, and that's it. That's it. We never go back ever again, okay, other than, you know, okay, well, we've got that there. We've got that picture. If we ever need to be reminded just how terrible this is, you know, that picture's there. But what we're doing now is looking to the future. It's 100% future focused. And, and I genuinely believe that if you get these, if you get your ducks in a row, if you focus only on what you're gaining, because I never use the phrase giving up ever. I call it ditching the booze. I will never use the phrase giving up because we are not giving up anything. So if from day one, you make force yourself to never use that phrase, literally put post-it notes everywhere and focus only on what you're adding in, focus only on what you're gaining. So it's nothing to do with what you're not having. It's what you are having. And when you focus like that, life starts to change. I mean, some people do find it really beneficial to just have a challenge. You know, it forever feels too big. I get that completely. So I highly recommend minimum 30 days, but can't make a huge amount of change in 30 days. So, I, you know, I, I always say, set yourself 100 days. What's not to like? 200 days, ideally. And promise yourself that in those 100 days, you will focus purely on what you're gaining. So create a list of what you hope for. Create a list of, what, what you're looking forward to. I'm looking forward to waking up with more energy. I'm looking forward to being more present with my kids. I'm really looking forward to seeing if my skin clears. I'm looking forward to seeing if I get sober hair. <laughs> Who knew? Um, just everything that you're looking forward to, all that excitement. Um, and and when, you, when you're future focused like that, I mean, it still takes some time because you, you, as I say, you can feel quite raw because you aren't the person you were before. Everything's stripped away. And most of us, let's face it, are not, 
very emotionally intelligent, if you know what I mean, because we've been through every single goddamn thing we've been through, everything, falling in love, getting married if we're married or, you know, everything, holidays, graduations, parenting has been through a haze of booze. Every breakup, first time we had, well, possibly even every time we've ever had sex. (laughs) There's the thing, right? Has been in through the haze of booze. And then when it's stripped away, there's this feeling of rawness of, my goodness, well, who am I then without that layer of, you know, seeming protection? And so in the last five years, the world of, of sobriety has really changed. And, and, you know, people don't feel so alone, and they know where to turn to, and they can come to you, and they can feel supported and feel inspired. For you, what do you see as what's your vision for the future in terms of alcohol? Mm. I I mean, I am not um, for prohibition uh, at all. What I would love to see is a society where it's literally as normal to choose to drink as to choose not to drink. So there's always the choice available. You know, I mean, now if you go, I mean, again, you know, with vegetarianism and veganism, it's changed massively. So if you go into a a bar or a restaurant anywhere in the country, you do expect there to be vegetarian or vegan options. You really do. And if there isn't, it's actually quite shocking. I mean, it's really shocking. Um, and, and you would never expect to be singled out. And that's quite a good analogy because, you know, again, if you were a, a, ve- uh, a vegetarian and you were invited to a barbecue, you wouldn't expect someone to be saying to you, oh, don't be so boring, I have a burger. I mean, really? <laughs> None of your business what I put in my mouth, right? Um, so I want it to be like that. I want it to be absolutely equal. This ridiculous link to you know, oh, if I'm drinking, you have to be drinking. It's just bizarre. And that's what has to stop. Um, and it is changing. You're right. It, it's definitely changing. There's the, the rise in alcohol free drinks has made a massive difference. It really has. It's, it's made a huge difference. My little mantra that I tell everyone is keep the ritual, change the ingredients, because lots of clients will say to me, oh, I know, I know you talk about, you know, alcohol free drinks, but you know, I'm good with my tea. I'm good. My, my cup of tea is fine. Well, you know what? It won't be. It won't be when everyone around you is celebrating. Cork, corks are popping and everyone's chinking a glass and you've got your little cup of tea because your inner toddler will say, this doesn't feel quite right. I feel a bit deprived here. So you have to look after your, your inner toddler. We're grown ups, And what we do is sometimes have something in a nice glass. But why would it have to be toxic liquid, right? So the drinks industry has really helped with this. And that's where the change has been so massive. I swapped um, the booze for kombucha in a champagne glass. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And kombucha, yeah. what a game changer. I went, when I, when I first stopped drinking, I went to um, the first trip I did abroad. Um, I was absolutely panicking because, of course, airports, like, you know, what's, you drink at 7 a.m., right? Clearly, time stands still. So I was so nervous. I actually p- packed a little, like, you know, the little 10-mil yeah. bottles. I had to put, packed a 10-mil bottle with some sea arch or some kind of botanical spirit so that I wouldn't feel, you know, deprived on the plane. Um, but anyway, what I was insane was I was going to Canada on my own. And I arrived in Canada and there was kombucha everywhere, every corner shop, every gas station everywhere so it was just perfect and then over the next sort of year or so I saw it get much bigger here 
Um, so it's been it's been amazing to see that yeah that it's now so easily available. My vision for the future is that there will be kombucha in every bar and every restaurant. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. There needs to be great choice. There needs you know a lot of bars have got alcohol free beers, but there needs to be as you say different kombuchas, alcohol free fizz available, and botanical spirits, and uh, there needs to be a whole fabulous choice because it's all out there. And the drinks companies are doing really well, so yeah. they're happy. You really do support all the people in your sober club um, and with the transformations that you've seen how would you define courage oh that's a lovely question isn't it i think courage is when you finally notice really properly become conscious of what it is you've been wanting you start to know what you want or what feels important to you and you start to get a sense of the possibility of it being able to happen. It doesn't necessarily mean it'll be easy, doesn't necessarily mean you will, in inverted commas, win, but you know what? You've got the courage to be authentic, to be who you are and to go after whatever it is. We talk a lot in Sober Club about purpose, about really knowing your, knowing your purpose. And it's always interesting because as a Hay House author, I've had this conversation a lot of times with a lot of leading gurus. And I'll always remember a conversation with Kyle Gray, the angel expert, who's done some stuff for us in the Sober Club. But I always remember saying to Kyle Gray, this was many years ago, some people get a bit confused by this word purpose because they, they, they compare themselves to other people and then they'll go, oh, you know, I'm not really talented. I'm not creative. And and to be honest, I don't really want to start a business. To be honest, I don't really want to write a book. That's the honest truth. So, you know, I'm so kind of bland and, and, and I don't have a purpose. And Kyle's answer is, you know what? Perhaps your purpose is to be happy. Mm. How cool is that? Because from that place, look how many, look what ripples mm. you, you spread, right? Um, and that's a, sometimes that's yeah. a game changer because when you're drinking, you, you, you never have that level of, of, of peace. You absolutely don't. How can you? You're being poisoned on a regular basis, yeah. right? Love that. Thank you so much, Janie, for encouraging and supporting people wherever they are on their sober curious or sober committed journey and for showing how important and exciting it is to be part of a community who are all headed on a similar path. Thank you so much. I'm so thrilled to finally meet you and talk about sobriety with someone who has taken the same journey. It's really lovely. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Thanks, Janie, for showing us that if we choose to go sober, we don't have to go it alone. You can find out more about Janie's work on www.janieleegrace.com and follow her on LinkedIn at Janie Lee Grace. Thank you, Brave New Girl Media, for producing and sourcing the guests for the show. And to you for listening. I hope today's story inspires you to step into the spotlight and show how you too are positively impacting the world. Take care, choose courage, and see you next time. Bye.